the last section when we it went, you know, the results of and so on and so forth, the necessity of, um, the importance. It was all about the death of Jesus Christ. And it went through all, all of that, all the aspects of the death of Christ. And now we're looking at the resurrection of Christ. All right, so I think we ended with the fact of it, but I will re rehearse that. Uh, the fact of the resurrection of Christ. In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 8, it reads, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. And then in Matthew 28, um, I like this next statement uh, here with a doctrinal statement in this, and I think we might have said it once, but we'll re, re get it again. Matthew chapter 28, in verse number 6, he, uh, well, that's back. Yeah, he is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. And then Mark 16, 6. Um, and he saith unto them, Be not affrightened, seek ye Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen, he is not here. Behold, I'm going to deal with that on Sunday, by the way. Behold the place where they laid him. So when they looked in, they seen the napkin folded. They see the, <laughs> I know, rich stuff. They seen the grave clothes, but he wasn't there. And so then, finally of this, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke 24, these references. Luke 24, uh, verse number 6. <clears throat> he is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee. Notice. <clears throat> Three of the Gospels. Of course, John writes it in a different way, but not like these, not these last verses here. Talking about the resurrection, but, you know, the Bible tells in the mouth of if two or three witnesses, let everything be established. Of course, he was seen of above 500 and resurrected Christ. But just bring it down to the Gospels. And these three Gospels, you know, those type of verses, you know, just straight out, he's, he's risen. All right, and yours, John 2. So we have those witnesses, those that seen a resurrected Christ of above 500. And like the doctrinal statement said, well... Before the doctrinal statement, it is one of the best authenticated facts of human history. It is the it is buttressed and supported by corroborative proof, such as is found in connection with com comparatively few other historical facts. And here's the doctrinal statement: the fact of Christ's resurrection is firmly established by the Scripture. It's established by the Scripture, and it's established by. Uh, just testimony and a lot of other things <clears throat> that 
beyond the scripture is established in our life, calendar, uh, uh, no, that would be, never mind, not the calendar, but establishing the scripture and uh, established. It was interesting too, this is stepping away from this. I didn't read the whole article, but I did read a, um, the headline of the article recently, just earlier this week, I think it was, that um, another archaeological find and the inscriptions in the, in the find, the archaeological find, gave, you know, just backed up the scripture of certain events, you know. So there again, like we talked about when we, when we was in the bibliology section of this, and so they're still finding proofs <laughs> that the word of God is real. And it's amazing that they continue to do that. All right, so we go back up to the resurrection. So the fact of it, secondly, the evidences of it. The evidences of it as seen by, one, the empty tomb. All right, so we're there at Luke 24. Luke 24, verse number three. That's by, and they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. See further, here's John's witness. John chapter 20. Verse 1 through 8. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher, she runneth, then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple. And I'll just say who we know was John. Okay, the other disciple whom Jesus loved and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together, and the other disciple the younger disciple, I'll just <laughs> throw that in there, did outrun Peter and came to the sepulcher and came first to the sepulcher and he stooping down and looking in saw the linen clothesline yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie and the napkin, that was about the, his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw and believed. Again, two witnesses. Well, plus one, you got Mary. There's three witnesses. All right. Um, for as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again into their own home. So here's John's account. Again, the empty tomb. So evidences of the resurrection by the empty tomb. Two things of interest here are here involved in the question of the resurrection. First, the resurrection body left the tomb before the stone was rolled away. It was not necessary that the door he, op he opened before the Lord of life 
could come forth from the grave. The stone was rolled away, not to let the Savior out, <laughs> but rather to let the women and the disciples in. Why enter? For evidence therein of the fact of the resurrection. The angel bade them enter, calling special attention to the place where the Lord lay. What was on that stone shelf to observe? The grave wrappings were there in such, a fo- in such form as we have learned, as to indicate the departure of the body there from without disturbing them. So he got not only out of the tomb without disturbing the stone, but he got out of the grave clothes (laughs) without disturbing them. Nobody unwrapped him. The way that that was one of the reasons they said, come in and look. And when they went in and seen, of course, John said, and they believed. And he believed. When they seen the grave clothes, how the grave clothes were laid. Okay? So you think of the mummy, how they wrap a mummy. Okay? We've seen, you know, photographs and things like that. Whenever they would, uh, you know, the Egyptians especially, of course, they would wrap the bodies and then they would put those herbs and, and the uh, things like that with the wrappings so that it keeps the smell down and things. And that's what the women had come to do to refresh that. But when they seen it, the, the wrappings just lay flat down as if the body just come up through them, which is what it happened. So the way that the wrappings were there gave an indication that he had not been disturbed by a person, but that he got up out of the grave clothes. And the fact that the napkin was not with those, the napkin that was covered his head was folded and lay somewhere aside (coughs) in a different place. So, what a blessing. So, there was thus no period of time, not even the shortest, after the tomb was opened when witnesses representing both enemies and friends, were not present to verify the facts. The guards on the one hand and the women on the other both witnessed the opening of the grave. No room is left for controversy about what happened or concerning the contents of the tomb. The body was there when the tomb was sealed. It was not there when the seal was broken. (laughs) The linen cloths were there and spoke of their own and spoke their own message confirming the word of the angel this was certainly continuous provision during those stirring exciting hours against misinterpretation of the truth then note the empty tomb in the gospels of mark and luke both of these accounts refer to the inside of the tomb and particularly to the place where the body had been laid In Mark, the angel specifically directs attention to the place where they laid him. In the Luke account, we read, quote, They entered in and found not the body. But Peter arose and ran unto the tomb, and stooping and looking in, he seeth the linen clothes by themselves. The women were perplexed, and Peter wondered at what they had seen. Thus all four of our evangelists recognize the significance of the evidence of resurrection presented within the tomb. The women of Galilee saw clearly evidences of his resurrection, 
It is confidently believed that as they approached the tomb, they saw it open. As they entered the tomb, they witnessed evidence which the grave clothes afforded that the body had not been violently removed. On the contrary, they were face to face with proof that the body had supernaturally left the winding sheets intact. Even the head roll remained in its original shape. It had only fallen back in a place by itself when released by the body of Jesus at an instant, at an instant of the change from the dead body to the resurrection body. And Mr. White was running with that last paragraph. All right, so we see the evidences of it seen by the empty tomb. Secondly, evidences of it as seen, uh, I'm sorry, by the appearance of the risen Lord. Acts chapter 1. By the appearances, plural, the appearances of the risen Lord. Mm. Acts 1 verses 1 through 3. Again, Luke being the writer of the book of Acts. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, seeing then of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Let's finish to the sentence. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. So it wasn't just the fact that they saw somebody that looked like Christ. Hence, (laughs) Thomas, (laughs) put forth thy hand (laughs) and see the prince in my hands. I'm paraphrasing. Put forth thy hand, thrust it in my side. So it wasn't just somebody that looked physically on the outside. Hey, he had prints in his hand. He had prints in his feet. He had a riven side that he showed his disciples as proofs. And and I might be getting ahead of myself. I'm just saying, as I was reading that paragraph, that, that those come to me. So it's not just these appearances, but... There was things about his appearance (laughs) that said he was definitely the one that had been on the cross. And uh, now he, and he is definitely the one that was in the tomb, and he's definitely the one now that is risen. So the appearances of the Lord. So it breaks it down even further. His appearance to Mary as consoler. And as consoler is in parentheses. Mary as consoler. John chapter 20. In verse number 16. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Okay, so, and then this is a selected poem. Not she with traitorous kiss, not she with traitorous kiss her master strung, 
not she denied him with unfaithful tongue. She, when disciples fled, could danger brave, last at his cross and earliest at his grave. <laughs> last at his cross and earliest at his grave. That's good. So he was a consoler to Mary. She was devastated, obviously. You know, like I said, last at the cross, in, according to the poem. And then the first, she, she had a, that desire. And there's all, all the Marys, and that's a whole other study, all the Marys that was there, that were there. And um, he consoled her. So his appearance to Mary as a consoler, his appearance, uh, his appearance to the women... And in parentheses, as the embodiment of restored joy, Matthew 28. As the embodiment of restored joy, Matthew 28, verses 5, 8, and 9. Verse number 5, And the angel answered and said unto the women, plural, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. Uh, Verse number 8 and 9. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy <laughs> and did run to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and beheld and held him by the feet and worshipped him. So again, to the women, he, he appeared to them as the embodiment of returned joy. So they, they left fearing, but they also left with joy. <laughs> and then they actually seen him in his, his appearance to them. And then they worshiped him. All right, so then to Simon Peter as the restorer of souls, Luke 24. This is his appearance, appearance to Simon Peter, Luke 24 and verse number 34. Saying, let's back up. Here's a comma. First number 33. And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. Let's go ahead. And they told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in breaking of bread. So again, as the restorer of souls, he's, he's seen Simon. There he's, he's seen Simon. So here it is. Um, why, why and Peter? Notice it says there, uh, he hath, uh, let's see here, verse 34, and hath appeared to Simon, yeah, saying, the Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared to Simon. Um. So why and Peter? Was not Peter one of the disciples? Surely he was. The very head of the apostolic company. Why then and Peter? So the Lord is risen indeed and hath appeared unto Peter. Okay. So so he was one of the disciples, like I said. No explanation is given in the text, but reflection shows it was the utterance of love toward the despondent despairing disciple who had thrice denied his Lord. So think about it. Peter 
and John probably were the ones that at least, you know, a lot of the disciples fled. But what we read is that Peter and John were, you know, Peter had followed at least afar off through some of his trials. And then, you know, trying to keep track of where he was at and what was going on with him. John was there at the, at the crucifixion because we know the exchange between John and uh, about uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. But Peter there, you know, get thee behind me, Satan, and you will deny me before the cock crows, and then the cock crows, and he's denied him thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. All right, so... So even though he, 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 he showed himself to the disciples, to the apostles, by that personal <laughs> uh, interaction, as a better word, with Peter, then that, like it says, a restorer of his soul, it, it just done something a little extra. Because, you know, people that have studied Peter in his personality and his personality type and there are people that really goes on that tangent a lot of people don't see that in just regular church services but people in Bible colleges uh, you know they take the the type of personality you are the the uh, psychological types and things like that that they do and the personality traits and we have the dominant one and then we have a secondary trait you know, and lots of times you see some of these traits, and so it's it is a science to that. Doctor uh, Ronnie Simpson, pastors in North Carolina, he's on the radio station. Um, he has a degree in psychology, and so he does bring some of that into his preaching and his teaching and his his books and writing there about just the type of personality that Peter was. You know, and you know, you see it. He was the first, he was out there in the front. In fact, you know, even though John outran him to the tomb, John, being a youth, <laughs> held short. And he just looked in. When Peter called up, huffing and puffing, being the old man, <laughs> just playing, <laughs> he just went straight in, you know, and that was just his, his personality. He was the first to stand. He, was, he declared in Matthew who he was. And, and he was a leader. Peter was used there in the day of Pentecost. Uh, so uh, whether it's just his, his personality traits, whether it's just his age, maybe among the other disciples, there was some leadership abilities, even though <laughs> in the leadership abilities of Peter, in fact, they, they, you know, they all looked to him. Even even to the place where the contingency between Paul and Peter happened. Peter was still looked to, and that's why Paul chided him a little bit, because they were looking, hey, Peter, what about this circumcision thing? Still, they're looking to Peter for these answers, and um, so when it all broke down and Peter realized that the Lord had prophesied of Peter's denial, then 
just that extra consolation is a good word in his appearance to Peter. Just that extra restoration and consolation. Peter, I've been trying to tell you this is all, all this up until now. It had to happen. Peter didn't see it. None of the other disciples seen it. But then, you know, Peter took it, took it harder, apparently. And then just that, and Peter. <laughs> you know, the disciples and Peter. And so that, we see that there. So to Simon, when he appeared to him as the restorer of his soul. And then to the to the to, to the two on the uh, to the two T W O on the way to Emmaus. Here's the parenthesis statement, parenthetical statement, as sympathetic instructor. So when his appearance to them, so we're going to go to Luke twenty four. We're there. Verse 13, 14, 25 through 27, and 30 through 32. So 13 and 14. Luke 24, 13. And Pilate, no, where am I? I'm in the wrong chapter. There we go, 13. And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem, about threescore furlongs. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. Verse 25. Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things, and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Verse 30. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and break and gave to them and their eyes were open and they knew him and he vanished out of their sight. So again, when he appeared to them, he appeared to them as a sympathetic instructor. Okay? So, uh, let's see here. Doubtless Jesus wished to comfort them and doubtless he did comfort them, but he had a deeper, more essential thing to do. These men were sad, not like... Mary Magdalene, or are in a personal way as having lost their Lord, but in a faithless way as having lost their Messiah. We trusted that it had been He which should have redeemed Israel. That's what they were looking for. Still that Messiah. Um, let's see here. The cure for them was not in a pers- in personal tenderness, as with Mary but a better understanding of the scriptures. Mary, again, a different type of relationship. They were, as it said there in the beginning of that, they were talking among themselves there. And they talked together of the things which had happened. We men get together The afternoons at camp is a good example of that. <laughs> Where we find ourselves just kind of, you know, in, sitting in the living room and just talking, reasoning. And that's, that's the way that these men were. So it wasn't so much 
that they needed the comfort like Mary did. It was they needed, just needed some answers. They needed enlightened, and that's exactly what he did when he said he went all the way back to the Old Testament. And he preached to them himself in the prophets. Ding! <laughs> oh! And so they found comfort in that, <clears throat> but it was in a different way than with Mary. And now to the disciples in the upper room, he appeared to them as the bestower of peace, as the bestower of peace. John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse number 19. And the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. So again, he is the bestower of peace. Jesus made a will just a little while before he went to the cross. He left a legacy to his disciple, a legacy of peace. He said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. But they could not come into their inheritance until after the death of the testator. (laughs) That's good stuff. (laughs) Peace I leave, my peace I give. But he had to die first, just like the will. I bequeath thee my. We did that. I didn't understand some of that, how that all worked. My first, I guess, experience of it was that whole senior thing in high school. And we, uh, I forget in what format it was, but somewhere along the way, we as seniors, the departing upperclassmen were able to bequeath some of our whatevers to the lower classmen. And uh, a friend of mine's younger brother uh, was probably going to go into the Air Force and did. So I bequeathed him my Air Force paraphernalia that I had gotten, you know, in my recruiting efforts. So it went to him who was then a sophomore, I believe it was, in my senior year. So, so again, but he didn't quote-unquote get it until after I left, all right, that kind of thing. So he told him he was going to give him peace, but the peace didn't really come until after the death. And when he, he died and he rose again and he entered in and appeared to them again there in verse number 19, he started off with peace be unto you. All right, so... Let's see, until the death of the testator, and then, lo and behold, he arose to be his own administrator. <laughs> and so the first thing he does is to, make over, uh, is to make over to them for their possession that which he had bequeathed them uh, to them, his peace. That's good. He said, I'm going to give it to you. And he died, and he came back and gave it to him. <laughs> he was the administrator of his will. What a blessing. That's good stuff. All right. And then, let's see here. We'll just do uh, probably one more. Then we've got some more to go after that. But this is a little bit lengthy. And then we'll stop with this one. So, again, 
his appearances of the risen Lord to Mary as a consoler, to the women as the embodiment of restored joy, to Simon Peter as the restorer of souls, to the two on the way to Emmaus as a sympathetic instructor, to the disciples in the upper room as the bestower of peace, and to Thomas as the confirmer of faith. John 20, the confirmer of faith. John 20, verse 26. And after eight days again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, uh, then came Jesus the doors being shut, and stood in the, midst of, in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then said he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands. And reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless. But believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. <laughs> Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. So to Thomas, he, was a, uh, he appeared to Thomas as the confirmer of faith. Goes to Luke 20, 14 and 11 as well. For a see further. Here, Thomas was the unbelieving one, and yet in grace, (laughs) the risen Lord would satisfy even Thomas. That disciple well knew that it was our Lord's deity which was an issue in his death. So when convinced of his resurrection, he instantly gave him divine worship. When Jesus died upon the cross, the faith of the disciples also apparently expired. Their love and devotion still lived, but it was love for one whom they had lost, and their devotion was to his memory, and expressed itself in loving ministry to his earthly remains. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus buried in the new tomb not only the body of Jesus of Nazareth, but also the faith of his followers and the faith which they afterwards manifested in strong evidence of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. There is no other way to account for it. How did their faith get out of the tomb? (laughs) How did their faith get out of the tomb if Jesus did not bring it out? They could not have stolen that away while the soldiers slept. They had to get that by honest evidence and get it. They did. <laughs> Hallelujah. I'm going to stop there. We've got three more here. Actually, two more. Uh, yeah, let's just do these two because there's a change wrought in the disciples. So this, again, is the appearances of the Lord. Yeah, so back up. Here we are. The evidences of it is seen by the empty tomb. The evidence of it is seen by the appearances of the Lord, and we're seeing all these appearances. And then the three is the evidence is seen by the change wrought in the disciples. But we still have two more here. Let's just grab these. To John and Peter, as one concerned with the daily affairs of life, John 21, we're right there, verses 5 through 7. Then saith Jesus unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They said, they answered him, no. And he said unto them, cast the net on the right side of the ship, 
and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Peter, Simon Peter heard that it was the, that it was the Lord, he girded his fisher's coat about unto him, for he was naked, and he cast himself into the sea. Again, this is to John and Peter as one concern with the daily affairs of life. The resurrection of Christ gives unto, unto the resurrection of Christ gives him to us for the ordinary activities of life, for the humdrum of way journeying and obtaining of the necessities of life. He is risen to be our daily companion in the most prosaic duties of our earthly experience. And then finally in this, to the whole company of disciples as the embodiment of headship and authority. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 4 through 7. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of about five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain of this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And it references Matthew 28, 18 through 20. So again, this goes back to the whole company of disciples as the embodiment of headship and authority. This is talking about his resurrection. As the risen Christ, he takes his place at the head of the church to which he has given life and being possessed of all authority for his direction and control. His resurrection furnishes full proof of his uh, authorization of this authorization. God raised him from the dead. All right. So we'll look at the change wrought in the disciples next time. So. Okay. Let me mark my place here. Uh. Colossians 2, verse 10. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of his sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. Amen. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Amen. Well, then it goes on to say in verse 13, And you being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out, of the way, nailing it woo, to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Sounds personal to me. <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs>